0: O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You are the all-glorious, all-wise King of creation. You rule over heaven and earth in perfect righteousness, and all that You have made displays Your power. You uphold all things, and history is but the unfolding of Your eternal plan purposed from before the creation of the world. You are the one who redeems, who forgives, who renews who regenerates, who glorifies. Our salvation comes entirely from Your grace. You have chosen us in Your Son, Christ Jesus, from before the foundation of the world, purely out of mercy and not for any merit in us. You justify us through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. You renew us by the working of Your Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life. Oh, we pray, give us life today. Give us wisdom Give us glory. We can do nothing without You, but with Your help, we can do all that You command. Make us faithful and fruitful. Mature us and make us like Christ Jesus, Your Son. As we enter Your courts with praise today, we are overawed and overjoyed that You receive sinners like us, that You are mindful of us despite our smallness. In our brokenness, heal us. In our helplessness, help us. In our lowliness, exalt us. All for the praise of Your glory. O Father, with Your Son and Holy Spirit, one eternal God in three persons. Amen. Our lesson of the day comes from Mark's Gospel, the ninth chapter, verses 38-41. to Here again, the Word of God. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, Assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, help me to speak your word faithfully and help us all to receive your word in faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to start by saying something about my sermon title, The Catholic Christ, or Christ the Catholic. Your first thought might be, hey, wait a second. Christ wasn't Catholic, He was Presbyterian. Well, what I hope to show you today is that Christ was not a denominationalist at all. The issue is not, was Christ a Catholic, or was He a Presbyterian, or a Baptist, but rather the question is, are Catholics and Presbyterians and Baptists of Christ? The issue is not, is he of us, but are we of him? But I still think that's a good place to start with that word that's there in the title. What does the word Catholic mean? Doesn't mean Roman Catholic in this context. In fact, it doesn't refer to any denomination at all. It is a supra denominational term. Uh, we're familiar with that term because we confess in the Nicene Creed each week. Uh, we acknowledge one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The Church Fathers used that term Catholic. Frequently, it's there in the creed going back to the ancient church. We recite it every week with Christians around the world. What does it mean? What's the meaning of that term Catholic? Catholic means universal. Uh, It means all believers, whatever their other differences, all those who trust in Christ and are baptized form one church, one family. And so all believing men, women, and children, all believers, young and old, are joined together in this thing we call church. In fact, really, we can go even further. Catholic means the church is made up of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and ethnic group throughout the earth. In fact, the Catholicity of the church implies that the church has a mission to all nations because God wants every nation discipled and brought into his new humanity. He wants the church to incorporate all of the Creational human diversity built into the world around us. So when I say, as I do in the title of the sermon, that Christ is a Catholic, that's what I mean. This was Christ's vision for His church, Christ's vision for His disciples. All disciples as one family. All nations discipled. One church, one new humanity, made out of every nation under heaven. But Christ's Catholic vision for the church has not always caught on with His disciples. Christ was Catholic, but sometimes His disciples have failed to be. And really, that's what we have in this passage here in Mark chapter 9. That's what this story is about. Christ's Catholicity, but the failure of His disciples to get with the program. Christ is Catholic, but here we see His disciples are struggling with sectarianism. Let's look at what happens in this story. To put it in context, uh, Jesus has just rebuked his disciples for arguing over which of them would be the greatest. When the kingdom comes, when the kingdom is rolled out in its fullness, uh, that's what the disciples are anticipating. And they've been arguing about which of them will be the greatest. And Jesus has just rebuked them for that. Now John comes to Jesus. So one of the twelve comes to Jesus and says... Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, John obviously thinks he's doing the right thing here, thought he was doing the right thing in trying to shut down this unauthorized exorcist. He comes and tells Jesus this, certainly expecting a pat on the back. Uh, John saw this strange unnamed exorcist as some kind of maverick who is using Jesus' name without a license, so to speak. He's performing exorcisms without the right paperwork, without the right credentials. And so John says to Jesus, we try to get him to stop. This is very ironic. Here is a man, this unnamed exorcist, who is having success driving out unclean spirits. He knows enough about who Jesus is to use Jesus' name properly and powerfully. He's combating Satan successfully, pushing back the kingdom of darkness so that Christ's kingdom might come. But it's so ironic. You remember what happened at the very beginning of this chapter? I know it's a long time since we looked at the very beginning of this chapter. But back at the beginning of Mark 9, the disciples tried to perform an exorcism, they tried to drive an unclean spirit out of a little boy. And they failed. They failed. They couldn't do it. How ironic is it that now we find someone doing what the disciples couldn't do, and yet the disciples want to stop him. You might think they'd be asking for tips from this guy. Exorcism tips instead of trying to shut him down and put him out of business. Is it possible, even probable, That their desire to stop this exorcist is really due more to jealousy and insecurity on their part than anything else. They don't like this para-apostolic ministry one-upping them. I mean, haven't we already seen in Mark's Gospel, back in chapter 3, Satan can't cast out Satan... So if this man is really casting out demons, he must be opposed to demons. He must be opposed to Satan's kingdom. And therefore, he must be on Jesus' side. He must be legit. What other conclusion could you draw? Look further at what John says. The the mistakes and the ironies get deeper and deeper. John says, the way he identifies the problem here is that this man is not following us Now maybe we could be a little more sympathetic with John if he said the problem here is that he's not following you, Jesus. But he says this man is not following us. As if the disciples themselves were worthy of following at this point. As if the disciples themselves were worthy of having followers at this juncture. I mean, why would the effective exorcist follow this band of ineffective exorcists? Again, it shows you just how inflated the disciples' view of themselves was. These guys were not suffering from low self-esteem. They wanted to keep their monopoly on Jesus' name and their use of Jesus' power. They wanted to claim exclusive rights as the only true disciples of Jesus. But Jesus surprises them with a rebuke. Instead of patting them on the back, Jesus says, do not forbid Him... For no one who works a miracle in My name can soon afterwards speak evil of Me. In other words, Jesus says, even though He's not one of you, even though He's not one of the twelve, even though He's not part of our inner circle, if He's doing powerful works in My name, He is a disciple. And so don't stop Him. Encourage Him. Appreciate appreciate Him. Really, this whole scenario is a lot like an event that happened back in Numbers chapter 11. I had Jimmy read that for us this morning because the connections, I think, are very clear. There in Numbers 11, what do you have? Moses is, of course, the leader of God's people at this point. He is the chief prophet through whom God speaks. Joshua is his disciple. Moses and Joshua have gathered 70 elders around themselves. And the Spirit's given to Moses and Joshua and to the Seventy, and they're all able to prophesy. But then it's reported that there are these two men, Eldad and Medad, who, who were prophesying, even though they weren't at the tabernacle, even though they weren't with the Seventy. And so Joshua hears about this, and he says to Moses, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. In other words, shut down these unauthorized Prophets Forbid these men to prophesy. Joshua wants Moses and the 70 to have a monopoly on the spirit of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Just like what John says here. He says, we tried to forbid the unauthorized exorcist. Joshua wanted to forbid these unauthorized prophets. But Moses replies the same way. Jesus replies with a stern correction. Moses says, Are you jealous for my sake? Oh, how I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon all of them. Of course, that's a wish that Moses has fulfilled centuries later at Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out on all of God's people. But Moses' point is, hey, I don't want to be the only one with the Spirit. I want the Spirit to spread out. I want all of God's people to be filled with the Spirit and to have the gifts of the Spirit. And Jesus is really saying the same thing here in Mark 9. In effect, Jesus is saying, oh, how I wish all of my people could drive out demons. How I wish everyone would use my name to push back the kingdom of Satan and the darkness. How I wish everyone had this power. Jesus goes on to give three reasons why they should not stop this exorcist even though he's outside the circle of the twelve. Three reasons why they should appreciate him rather than forbid him. Verse 39 gives the first reason. Jesus says, no one doing a work of power in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. In other words, even though Miracles do not absolutely guarantee that this man will always be a faithful disciple. And we know that. We know that there were people who were able to perform miracles in Jesus' name who later fell away. Even though doing these miracles does not absolutely prove this man will always be faithful, it certainly means he's on the right track right now. His use of Jesus' name would not have power unless he was trusting in Jesus. These exorcisms are magical He's able to do these power works only by faith in Jesus. The use of Jesus' name shows this man is a loyal and true disciple. That's the first reason. The second reason comes in verse 40. Jesus says, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now, this gives people a little bit of trouble because in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, it seems that Jesus says just the reverse. There Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. But the contexts are very different. That context has to do with enemies uh, and, and is basically saying, look, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. The context here is someone who is a disciple but who's not part of the Twelve, who's not part of the inner circle. There were certainly other disciples besides just the Twelve. Clearly, this man is on Jesus' side in the great battle against Satan and unclean spirits. And Jesus is indicating here the disciples should have recognized that. They should have seen. This man is on the same team. He's an ally. He's fighting the same enemy. And so even if he's not a part of the disciples' group, they should be able to tell where the battle lines are drawn. Oh, he may be part of a different battalion. He may be even in a different branch of the military, you could say. But he's a fellow soldier. He's a fellow combatant against Satan in the great cosmic battle of history. And then in verse 41, you have the third reason. Jesus says, whoever gives you, so he's speaking directly to the disciples, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus here refers to himself as the Christ, as the Anointed One. And He tells His disciples, don't despise men like this exorcist. Because contrary to your expectations, times are coming. Times are coming that they're going to be really, really tough. Times are coming when you're going to need all the friends you can get. Times will be so hard that you'll be desperate even for a cup of water. And I want you to know, anyone who gives you a cup of water because you belong to me will be rewarded. Even the smallest acts of compassion and care shown to you, my disciples, for my sake, because you belong to me, will be rewarded. In fact, really what Jesus is implying here, especially I think by calling himself the Christ, he's saying any actions done towards you, any actions of care and compassion done towards you are really done for me and I will reward them. How people treat you as my agents is how they treat me. When they treat you well, they're really treating me well. That's what Jesus is saying. But there's a really important principle embedded in this. Hard times are coming and when hard times come for the disciples, they're going to need all the friends and allies they can get. It's just a fact. In times when the church is under pressure from persecution or from any kind of trial, we tend to become more Catholic, more appreciative of what we share in common with other disciples. And I think that's really what Jesus is getting at here. So Jesus is saying, look, you may object to this strange exorcist doing work in my name right now. But a time's going to come when you will be very thankful for any ally you can get, any friend you can get, and you should know those who help you, even with small acts of kindness and service, because your mind will be rewarded. I've given them the greatest possible incentive to help you when that time comes. So that's this passage. That's what's going on here. What I want us to do now is step back from this passage and ask about the big picture. What might a passage like this have to say to us today? See, I think this passage is very relevant because the kind of thing John does here is all too common in the church. Sadly, it happens all too frequently in the church. John says he wanted to stop this exorcist because he wasn't following us. Now in Mark's Gospel, every time Mark uses that language of following It is a term for disciples, for discipleship. Uh, Masters have followers. Their followers are their disciples. So to be a follower is to be a disciple. So when John says, this man isn't following, what he's really saying is, this man is not a disciple. I don't recognize this man as a fellow disciple. John says the exorcist is not a disciple. Jesus says, oh yes, he is. John is sectarian. Jesus is Catholic. But that same sectarian spirit that John shows here, a spirit of division, a a spirit that breeds separation, it's very much with us today. Indeed, I would say it's been the bane of the church for centuries. We have divided and subdivided and sub subdivided from one another, tearing apart what belongs together, what God has joined together, tearing apart the body of Christ. Instead of all disciples functioning as one family, facing a common demonic enemy, all too often we have turned our guns on each other. We fought against each other rather than with each other against Satan. If you skip down to the very end of this chapter, you see what Jesus really wants. Verse 50, I didn't read it. But there Jesus says to His disciples, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now later on, I'll come back and we'll talk about what the salt is, assuming I can figure it out between now and then. But whatever it is, it leads to peace and that's what Jesus wants for His disciples. Peace. He wants peace between the disciples. He wants harmony. Jesus puts a premium on how His disciples treat one another. He wants us to be united. He wants us to be one. Now, some in our day immediately jump from that, oh, Jesus wants us to be one. Jesus wants peace. Jesus wants us to love each other. They jump from that to assuming that Jesus was some kind of first century hippie, flower child, who wouldn't hurt a flea, who just went around preaching some kind of message of this sentimental, gooey love. Why can't we all just get along? That's not it either. That's a rather one-sided take on what Jesus says. Yes, Jesus does want unity among His people. He wants us to love one another. He wants harmony and peace. But it's not a blank unity. It's very clearly a unity rooted in truth. A unity rooted in righteousness. In order for Jesus' disciples to be united with one another, they must be divided from the world. They must separate themselves from the world. And sometimes that means they must separate even from those who claim to be disciples but are not. Not all who claim to be disciples really are. Some who claim to be disciples actually still belong to the world. And you can see that in what they believe and in how they live. And so we have to be discerning. See, the point here is not that Christ's kingdom has no boundaries. It does. Yeah, certainly, we're called to love everyone, but our love is in the truth, and it's shaped by the truth. Indeed, there is no love without truth. But I would guess that in our circles, we need to be reminded more uh, of the other error that we can fall into. It's also true to say there is no truth. Without love. No truth without love. Divisions and factions among true disciples, where disciples turn against each other, that's simply not acceptable. That kind of factionalism and sectarianism contradicts the nature of the church, it's a violation of what Jesus calls the church to be. And in fact, you see this again and again, it's all throughout the Scripture, but you especially see it throughout the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, this great priority put on true disciples loving one another in the truth, being at peace with one another. Is there in our Gospel lesson, the prayer Jesus offers just before He is betrayed and goes to the cross, what does He pray for? What are the prayer priorities of Jesus just before He goes to the cross? He prays that His disciples would be one. Uh, If you've been around for a while, you've heard me talk about John 17 uh, probably many times, but it's a passage that I think is worth revisiting. What does Jesus do in this prayer? Jesus makes it clear that He desires His people to be one. In this prayer, he makes it clear that the unity he desires is not just for the twelve, but for all who come to believe in him through their word. He wants all disciples to be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. In other words, his prayer is for the formation of a Catholic church that practices Catholicity. A Catholic church, a universal church, it includes all believers, all faithful disciples, And it practices Catholicity. It practices peace. It's a universal, united church. Indeed, Jesus goes on in that prayer to show that it is the Trinity that provides the pattern for our unity. We are to love one another even as Father and Son... Love one another. That's the model. The way Father and Son get along with each other, did the Father and Son ever argue? Did they ever get in a fight with each other? Did they ever compete against one another? Did they ever argue about who's going to be the greatest or who's going to get the most glory? Is the Father ever jealous of the Son or vice versa? No. No. The Father and the Son love and serve and glorify one another. And that's the model for us. The Father and the Son are utterly united in their purpose and in their mission. And that's the model for us. All faithful followers of Jesus were to be one, united in purpose and mission, loving one another even as the Father and Son love one another and are united in their purpose and mission. The way the Father and the Son love, honor, and serve one another, that's the model Jesus gives us for life in the church. We can say within our churches, within a local congregation like this one, that's our model, but also between churches, how we relate to other congregations. And Jesus wants this love and unity to be visible. It's got to be public enough and it's got to be openly manifest enough for the world to see because Jesus says, this is how the world will come to know the Father sent me. And you're my disciples. You've got the same thing later on in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul takes up the issue of divisions within the church at Corinth. And we see Paul has the same agenda as Jesus. Paul says the Corinthians are acting in a fleshly way. Fleshly here doesn't have to do so much with physicality, physicalness, as it does with human life in rebellion against God, the flesh is at war with the Spirit. The Spirit wants to build a united church. The flesh wants to tear it apart. Paul says the Corinthians are dividing up into parties and factions around their favorite celebrity pastor. Some are saying, I am a Paul, or I am a Peter, or I am of Apollo. So it's kind of like saying, my pastor can be up your pastor. They're setting these leaders against each other. Paul, by contrast, sees the leaders as cooperating, as harmonizing. Paul says, yes, some plant, some water, some harvest, but it's all from God who gives the increase. Paul identifies the church as God's field. God's the one who will give the increase, the harvest. But Paul also says the church is God's house. He describes the church as God's building, God's temple. Of course, the temple in the Old Covenant is the place where the people would go to meet with God, where they would receive His gifts and behold His glory. Paul says, your congregation is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Every local church gets to play host to the Holy Spirit. Every local congregation is a house in which the Holy Spirit dwells. We're Hosting the Holy Spirit. What kind of hosts are we? What kind of house are we? Paul shows us we're to build the church on nothing but Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. His death and resurrection, His Gospel is to always be the foundation of the church. And a church that's built on that foundation is immovable. It is unshakable. But then Paul goes on to ask the question, what kind of material are we building with? What kind of materials are we using? Are we building with gold and silver or with hay and stubble? And Paul makes it clear, every church will be tested by fire. The fire of trial, the fire of persecution, the fire of satanic attack. And you'll note some of those materials are flammable and some of them are not. But when the fire comes, the quality of what we've built will become evident. And I think Paul wants us to see here a church that is divided against itself is a church made out of straw. And it's going to go up in flames. It's going to go poof and smoke. And that's going to be it when trial comes. A church where there is sectarianism, a sectarian spirit... A church where there's gossip, where there's cliquishness, where there's rivalry and infighting. A church where secondary matters have taken the place of Christ at the center of the church's identity and of the church's life. A church where we're more concerned about promoting ourselves and spreading the gospel. All of those kinds of things divide the church and tear the church down. Divisiveness destroys the church. And Paul wants us to see those who destroy the church will be destroyed by God. Those who attack God's house, God Himself will attack. And what Paul's saying When Paul's saying this is true within the church, we can also say it's true between churches, between congregations. Divisions within churches, divisions between churches are destructive. They're destructive to the mission of the Gospel in the world. The whole reason we're here here to further God's kingdom. Division hinders that mission. It hinders that work. Division is scandalous. It betrays our claim to be the body of Christ. It's a calamity. It's anti-Catholic. It stands in the way of the prayers of Jesus being answered. What then are we to do about our situation today? If all of this is true. Sounds wonderful. But then we look at the church around us today and we see how there is a multitude of denominations and and. God has faithful people scattered into a multitude of denominations. What are we to do about that? What can we do about that? It is certainly true to say there is a unity that exists in Christ's church between all believers that cannot be destroyed by denominationalism or anything else. The oneness of the church, the catholicity of the church is just a fact. We are all one in Christ. All true believers are one in In Christ. But it's also true. There is a unity. Which cannot exist. So long as there are denominations. The public manifestation. Of our unity. The visibility of our oneness. Our catholicity is obscured. By these divisions. Now again it's true. There are times when faithful Christians. Must separate themselves. From other church members. Who have proven to be unfaithful. Who have fallen away. So there is such a thing as disobedient union, staying in union with those you ought to separate from. There's such a thing as obedient separation. After all, the greatest separation, the greatest split in church history was led by Jesus himself as he led his disciples out of the old Israel to form something new, this Catholic church. But Scripture again and again addresses the problem of Christians separating from other Christians whom they ought to have unity with. That's the problem really here in Mark 9. Go back to Mark 9. Think about this. Think about the consequences of what John is proposing, what John attempted to do. Let's just say that John had succeeded in shutting down this exorcist, the work of this... Exorcist. What would have been the consequences of that if John had succeeded? Well, for one thing, the family of disciples would have been divided. Instead of having one group of disciples all connected with each other, you would have had two. There would have been a split within the family of disciples. What would have been the result of that? The result would have been that this exorcist would have no longer been practicing his exorcisms, which means the demons would have had more power, darkness would have been spreading. The kingdom of Satan would have been spreading instead of Christ's kingdom. It's so important to understand this. Whenever there are divisions among God's people, the church is weakened and Satan's kingdom gains ground. What you to think about this historically. One of the reasons public life in the Western world is so secular, one of the reasons public life in the Western world is so godless is because of the divisions that plagued the church after the Reformation. Because we couldn't agree. Because we divided up into Presbyterians and Lutherans and Baptists and so on. It made it look to the world like religion must be something that's just private and subjective. And because of our disagreement, it was no longer plausible to say the Gospel is public truth that ought to shape public life because Christians no longer agreed with each other. And so once the church in the West began to divide and subdivide, and as Christians began to bite and devour one another, as there was no longer a point of unity to be found in the church, you know what people did? They started to look for unity, for social cohesion, elsewhere. And so instead of one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church being the point of unity, it became one nation under God, indivisible. And so in the way modern people think, the church is divisible, that's just a given. Look how divisible the church is, but the nation is not. The nation is indivisible. Now if you ask what is this God, who is this God that the indivisible nation is under? It's not a God we recognize as God. It's not the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rather a God with a lowercase g, a God who is nothing more than a national mascot to make us feel good about ourselves. See, that's why Satan loves it when Christians fight And that's why Satan hates it when Christians get along. One of Satan's greatest victories in all of history was to get Christians to to no longer take the Lord's Supper together. So that you know, there are certain churches that they, they only serve the Lord's Supper to people in their particular denomination. That's one of the greatest victories of Satan because it manifests the division of the church right at the heart of the church's life. This is why Jesus prayed for our oneness. Again, in John 17, our oneness and our love for one another is how the world comes to know that Jesus is God, that He is the Savior, the Father sent. Division jeopardizes the mission. Unity empowers the mission. Again, Jesus prays that we would have a unity visible enough for the world to take notice of. What does that mean, then, for how we should view other churches? If all of this is true, and obviously we're not going to be able to undo the denominational system overnight, and to a certain degree, that's okay. Providentially, this is the era we live in, and denominations do allow Christians to serve and minister more more efficiently, you could say, even though there's a, a, a loss in a lot of ways. It does keep us from having to continually work through issues we disagree over. What what does this mean for how we should view other churches? Let's just say churches that uphold the creeds and Christian morality. Well, we can't do what John does here and how he views this exorcist. We can't view other churches as the competition. We've got to see them as fellow soldiers in the war on Satan's kingdom of darkness. Let me put it this way. You're not a mature disciple of Jesus until you can pull for other Christians and root for other churches to do well. There should be no turf wars among Christians. We should be able to rejoice in the success of other Christians, the success of other Christian ministries, other churches. We should appreciate, respect, and praise the work done by other Christians in other denominations, in other traditions. We should recognize that God is using them to drive back the darkness. And we should be grateful for that. If the power of Christ was not limited to just the twelve in that day, you can be sure it isn't limited just to Presbyterians or any other single group in our day. One way to know that you are growing as a Christian is when your theological convictions and your theological knowledge are deepening at the same rate that your love for those Christians who differ with you is deepening as well. Yes, go deeper in your knowledge of the truth, your understanding of the truth, but only so long as you are going deeper in your love for those brothers and sisters who disagree with you. We need to think practically of ways we can build the unity of the church. What are some ways we can build the unity of the church even in our own context? There's what Chuck Colson called an ecumenism of the trenches. That is where Christians from different denominations, and different traditions come together to work on common projects. Sometimes it's a mercy ministry. Project, caring for the poor, sometimes it's taking a stand together on a political issue in the public square. But I would say, along with that kind of shoulder to shoulder ecumenism, we also need a face to face kind of ecumenism where we're charitably and honestly seeking to work out our differences with other Christians. Uh, You heard Dr. Lightheart this morning talk about the upcoming Theopolis Nevin lectures. That's really what those lectures are all about. A a chance for Christians to build up convergence with with other Christians from other traditions, other denominations, through a forum that provides a place for honest discussion. With the hope that that honest discussion will yield greater mutual understanding and ultimately greater unity in the church. Well, let me let me put it this way to you. Uh, I, I, and this, I can close with this. I'm sure a lot of you uh, are old enough to remember the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. If you're not old enough to remember that, find somebody who is who can tell you the story. Uh, the U.S. Olympic hockey team in the 19 in 1980 was a huge underdog. Uh, But they somehow made it to the medal round where they were going to play the greatest team in the world, perhaps the greatest hockey team ever assembled from Russia. And of course, this is right at the height of the Cold War. The coach of that U.S. hockey team, Herb Brooks, uh, had about seven months to prepare the team for the Olympics. What he had to do was take a bunch of amateur players, college players, and mold them into a team that could basically take on professionals who had been playing together for over a decade. And he had to take these individuals who had been stars on their college teams, but who didn't really necessarily like each other. In a lot of cases, they came from college teams that were rivals of one another. They came from rival schools. He had to mold them into a unit in, in, so that they could function as one. And one of the things he would do is he would say to his players, tell me your name and who you play for. And the players would always give their name, and then they would, when, they, when it came to say who they played for, they would name their college. You know, uh, I'm, I'm Schwartz, and I, uh, I play for the University of North Dakota. And I'm uh, O'Callaghan, and I play for Boston College. But there was a major turning point as he was training this team and preparing them for the Olympics where they went from seeing themselves as individual players to a team, to a unity. And and, and Coach Brooks told his players, he said, what you need to always remember is that the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back of the jersey. All these players had their individual names on the backs of the jerseys. But that wasn't important anymore. What was important was the name they all shared on the front of the jersey where it said USA. And that's how it is for the church as well. On the backs of our jerseys, it might say Presbyterian. It might say Baptist. It might say Roman Catholic. It might say Eastern Orthodox. It might say non-denominational. What's most important is the name on the front of the jersey, the name Christian. Because we have all been baptized into Christ Jesus. We all trust in the same Savior. That's what matters most. We're on the same team, finding it's the same enemy. That's right. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that all of your people are united together in Christ Jesus, that all saints across time and space are one. May our love for all of Christ's disciples be visible to the world, and may that love make the gospel plausible. May we remember that even though, yes, the the things we disagree over may be very, very important, and they're certainly worth discussing and, and debating, the things we hold in common in Christ Jesus, when faith, when Lord, when baptism, that's what's most important. Lord, we long for the day when separation will be changed into unity, when dispute will be transformed into agreement. But in the meantime, help us to love. Help us to love all Your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.